We'll pray together. Our Lord, we give you thanks for this time again in your word. We pray now that you would give us by your grace and your Holy Spirit the power to both hear and, and speak the right words of God. We pray that you would give us confidence so that you are ready to hear this prayer. And so come and equip my mouth that I would preach your word and equip our ears to hear this for what it is, the word of the Lord, and change our lives accordingly to it. Draw us to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, let me start by filling you in a little bit on what's coming down the road in terms of our preaching and what you can expect in the coming weeks. Next week, we're going to start a short sort of three-week mini-series uh, that we're calling If I Could Tell You One Thing. So what we're doing is we're having some guest preachers come, some local church planters, nearby churches and friends of ours who are going to come. And what I've asked them to do is if you could come and preach one sermon at Seven Mile Road, if you could share one passage, if there was one thing that you felt like Seven Mile Road needed to hear, what would you tell us? And so each of these guys who are going to come are going to come and tell us one thing. And I, I want to tell you, I'm, I'm very eager to hear what the Lord would have us as a church hear from him as we start this year. As these brothers of ours are, are older and have been in church planting longer than our two-year-old church. And so God has some wisdom to give to us, encouragement, rebuke over the coming weeks. Uh, Doug Logan, the pastor of Epiphany Camden, one of the church plants that we're helping to support, will come uh, next week, then Rob and Gino from Real Life Church, both pastors who have been here before, will come and preach to us. And then Ian McConnell, a brother who's planting a church called Grace Bible Church across the boulevard, just on the other side, uh, who's a church plant there connected with the Sovereign Grace Network, which is a church planting network just like the Acts 29 network that we're a part of and, and good friendship. These brothers will come. And I am eager and excited for them, and, and also eager and excited for the idea of our churches connecting together. Uh, if you've been at Seven Mile Road, you've heard us say many times, we are not trying to build our own little kingdom, our own little empire with our name and logo in all places. What we're trying to do is just be swept up into the bigger kingdom work that God is doing in our city. And so beautifully and joyfully, there is no competition among these churches, but rather a celebration for what God is doing there and there and there and here. And these brothers love us, and I am eager for us to welcome them well and hear from them. So that's what's coming. And then in between that, we're also going to squeeze a week to talk about mission and global mission and especially focus on our team that is heading for Bombay in a month. We want to pray for them, encourage them, and send them off well, and so we'll do that. We'll take a week to do that. And then coming out of all of that, we'll have a series on prayer that we will enter into. Uh, and I want to invite you, this is not just a religious throwaway line, I'm saying pray for me as we craft that series that God would use that to teach us how to pray. We want to call that series, Lord, teach us to pray, just like the disciples said to Jesus. We want our church to hear that as well. Okay, so that means that today is sort of an in-between kind of week. We just spent nine months or so, ten months or so in the book of Exodus. We've got some things coming in the weeks to come. And so what I wanted to do today was just sort of restate our vision. I want to take, as we enter into 2012, as we enter into a brand new year and a brand new season as a church, I want to ask again, why are we here? Why does this church exist if you come to a church plant, you are likely asked by other Christians, why do people start new churches, 
right? When there are so many churches around, why would anyone start a church, plant a church? And, and particularly, I want to ask, why does Seven Mile Road Church exist? What are we here for, right? What is our vision? Where are we headed? What are we shooting for? What, what is it that we're getting after? Now, there are some guys, I have to tell you, that some guys, if you ask them about vision, they can articulate it beautifully, Right? I, I get asked as a pastor of this church several times, many times, and it's a fair question. Pastor, what's your vision for us 25 years from now? All right? And there are certain guys who can just articulate that to the T. They can tell you exactly what we're going to look like and exactly what we're going to be and, and exactly what this whole thing is going to be. And I, maybe with some more prayer, and I mean that, I'm not mocking that, maybe with more prayer and more maturity and more godly men, Uh, who are leading this church would be able to answer that. But what I really want to say is I have no idea. What is Seven Mile Road going to be in 25 years? I have no idea. That sounds dumb, so I make up something when people ask, right? I have no idea. In fact, the only thing I'm excited about is that you think I'll be here in 25 years. That's exciting to me. That's a compliment. But other than that, what we're going to look like, what we're going to be, what we're going to have done and accomplished by then... I have dreams, and I have prayers that we're praying. I have prayers that I'm praying for the men of this church, young single men in particular. I have prayers that I'm praying for the women of this church, for our children. I I have dreams that we'll plant churches and send missionaries. I've got plenty of things that we are all praying and seeking the Lord about. But what are we going to be five years from now, 10 years from now, 25 years from now, beyond that? So what does that mean? Does that mean that we're gathering here sort of aimlessly, purposelessly, sort of senselessly with no aim, no direction, no real thought about where we're going, what we're getting after? Here's what I want to say. While I have no idea what journey God is going to take our church plant, and I have no idea where he's going to ultimately get us to, I want to tell you I know with absolute confidence and conviction, what he wants us to be about. And I know that to the point of I'm saying to you, whether that's five years from now, 10 years from now, or a hundred years from now, I know what God has called Seven Mile Road Church to be about. There are a few markers along this journey that I'm absolutely positive about. Where the journey is going, I have no idea, but I do know the markers. I do know what it is we're shooting to become. I know what it is we're heading for and what it is we're aiming for and what it is we're getting at. Now, what are those things? Well, the Apostle Paul speaks of them far better than I could. So if you've got the Bible in front of you, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. This is the passage Stephanie just read for us Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. What are these things that the Lord is calling Seven Mile Road Church to be about? Here's the first one. Look at Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10. That's the passage Stephanie just read for us, so I won't reread it. But here's the first thing God wants Seven Mile Road to be about. The gospel. Whether we're talking about 10 years from now or 100 years from now, God wants Seven Mile Road Church to be about the gospel. That is what we're shooting for. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we want to become, a gospel people. 
Now, what does the gospel mean? Well, Paul tells us. He begins in verse 1 to unpack the gospel, and he tells us some bad news first. And what he tells us is that we are sinners in the first four verses. Now, you hear me say that we've got some bad news, some terrible news. We're sinners, and that rolls off your back. Sinner is such an innocuous word to us. It hardly causes us to rattle or shake in the least bit. But Paul begins to unpack what he means when he says that we're a sinner. And when you hear what Paul says about the human condition, your fists are going to raise a little bit because you're going to get a little bit defensive. In fact, he'll say that our condition as human beings is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Not that we're hurt, not that we're impaired, not that we just need healing. That your condition by nature is that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You got to hear that. Tell me how much thinking does a dead corpse do? How much motion does a dead corpse make? How many movements does a dead corpse have? Nothing. It's dead. That's the point. And Paul says that our condition by nature and by choice is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Here's what that means. That means there is nothing in you that's seeking for God by yourself. You want to say, no, 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 I'm pursuing God. I'm telling you, Paul's saying, by nature, there is nothing in you thinking Godwardly, nothing in you moving towards God, longing for God, seeking God. You are dead in your trespasses and your sins. And then he says, while you are dead in your trespasses and sins, you're walking in trespasses and sins. So you're dead to God, but alive in sin, walking in sin, loving sin, running towards sin, living up and lapping up sin. He goes on to describe it as not just that, but that you're following the prince of the power of the air. That's another title for God's enemy, that there's this energy and power in this world. The world is called the devil's domain. It's, it's he's the ruler of this world. And while we are dead to God and alive to sin, we are following after the patterns of this world, conforming to the principles of this world and following the prince of the power of the air. He goes on. And that we do that sin by gratifying our own sinful natures and desires and carrying out the desires of our flesh. And then he goes on to say, and not only that, that we are, like all mankind, objects of God's wrath. We're children of wrath. That our condition by nature, how we come out of the womb, is dead in sin, dead towards God, alive towards our sin. Walking away from God, walking towards our sin with no thought for God, no desire for God, no longing after God. All the while following the prince of this world and the patterns of this world. And we are by nature children of God's wrath. That we don't start with a blank slate at neutral. We start with a black slate. We're dead. We're at negative infinity. And then Paul says, but there's good news. And that's what the gospel is. In verse 4, you'll find the two perhaps greatest words of all the scriptures, but God. This is who we are, but God, because he is rich in mercy and grace, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. The good news is, but God is merciful and rich in love and grace towards us. If you are alive spiritually today, it's not because you did anything, but because, but God is rich in mercy and grace. He walked by your spiritual grave and said, come alive, and you came alive. 
Your heart started to beat with faith in Christ and love for Christ. Now, I know some of you want to say, no, 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 no. I raised my hand, and I signed the card, and I came down the aisle, and I chose Christ. And I want to tell you, you did all those things because he made you alive. He came by your grave and said, come alive, and you came alive. He came and opened your eyes and said, see, and you saw. Because God is rich in mercy and grace, he walked by and made us alive. And, and because of that, the good news is that Jesus came into the world. That's God's own son, God in the flesh. And Jesus dies for us because this is who we are. Because I was dead in my sins, Jesus died for us. Because we were objects of God's wrath, Jesus dies for us. Because we were alienated from God and following the prince of this air, Jesus dies for us. Because we were following the desires of our body and flesh, Jesus dies for us. And Jesus comes and lives the life we were supposed to live. Jesus, completely unlike us, was alive to God and dead to sin. Hear that? He was all the while alive to God and dead to sin, and he dies for us. And he rises again. And through his death and resurrection, which is what the Bible calls the gospel... All these things of who we were in verses 1 to 4 is now different. We were dead in 1 to 4, but after verse 4, we're now alive in Christ. We were walking in the world following the devil, and now we're seated in the heavenly places with Christ. We were following the prince of this world. Now we're following Jesus. We were once the objects of God's wrath, and now look. We're the objects of his mercy and grace and love. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has made us alive and seated us in the heavenly places and made us the objects of his mercy and his grace. Okay, now here's the thing. I have articulated for us what the gospel is. And yet... It's not enough to simply know biblical truth. We've got to live biblical truth. Now, that's a no-duh sentence. You you hear that and go, no-duh, right? I, I want you to hear this. God has been recently convicting me deeply that I know about God much better than I know God. Do you hear that? I know about God much better than I know God. I know about him. If you ask me what is the doctrine of anything, I'm telling you I could articulate it wonderfully. But there is a deep difference between knowing about God and knowing God. These biblical truths that we want Seven Mile Road Church to be about, it's one thing for us to be able to articulate them beautifully. It's another thing for them to impact the way that we live, for them to change us. Let me give you an example. I was at PBU this week. That's my shout-out to PBU since they gave me a free course, all right? So they gave all the pastors in the area a free audit, so I took a class at PBU. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 8 to 7, something like that. Just long days. While I was at the class, this pastor, the, the professor, gave this example, and he was speaking to the same thing God's been convicting me about, about not just hearing doctrine or knowing doctrine, but applying doctrine. If, if doctrine is irrelevant and unimportant to you, if hearing the word sounds like something for someone else, it's because you don't live doctrine, right? He tried to explain that there's a difference between knowing about doctrine and living doctrine. And, and he gave an example about the doctrine of eschatology. Now, seminary folks like to use big words so that we feel important. 
Eschatology is just a word that means last things, end times. What's the Bible say? What's a biblical theology of how the world is going to end and Jesus is going to come back and how we're to live ready for him and he's going to come and judge the world and we're going to live forever. Now, there's two ways to do doctrine, right? Again, because seminary folks like big words, there's premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. You have no idea what that means. It doesn't matter. But you've got this perfect way of outlining exactly how Jesus is going to come, when he's going to come, how many years before he does this or that. The professor said that when someone asks him what is his doctrine of eschatology, he tells this story, that there was once a man who was traveling to Europe, He was just sort of hitchhiking through Europe, backpacking through Europe, and he comes upon this old monastery. So he goes and visits it, and he goes and he looks at one of the rooms of one of the monks, and very simple, very austere, just a cot on the side, a a wooden chair and a wooden desk to write at, a small bin for a few shirts. And this traveler looks at the man and he says, where's all your stuff? He asked the monk, where's all your stuff? And the monk responds by saying, where's your stuff? To which the the man responds, I'm just a traveler. I'm just passing through. And the monk responds, so am I. That was very profound for me. Because there's a difference between being able to articulate end times and Jesus' return and being ready for him and the difference between actually living that out having the doctrine so deeply in your heart that it not only is something that you can spit out, but you live different because of it. The man had come to believe that he really was a traveler. He was just journeying here, passing through. This was not his home. Heaven was his home. Now, I'm not saying you've got to become monks. What I am saying is that doctrine has to be lived. The gospel cannot just be something you know about. It's got to be something you know. It's not something we can articulate at Seven Mile Road. It's got to be something we live. And so our vision here at Seven Mile Road is not just to be a people who talk about Jesus' gospel, but a gospel people. And that we would believe these things to the point that it affects us and changes how we live. Do you understand? There's a difference between the theology we articulate and the theology we live between our our written-out theology and our functional daily working theology. I can say God is sovereign. You believe that. But the question is, does you live your life as though the day in and day out and the things that you're suffering and going through are under the supervision of God's sovereign power and plan? That everything comes to your life is according to his purposes and plans and he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. It's very different to say, I believe God is sovereign and to believe it in such a way that I live as though God is sovereign. So here's what I'm saying. At Seven Mile Road, if we're going to be a gospel people, if we're going to be called to be about the gospel, that's going to impact the way that we are, right? It'll mean all kinds of things. It'll mean that we're a humble people. It has to because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the prince of the power of the air like the sons of disobedience, and we were by nature objects of God's wrath. If all of that is true, where are we going to boast? Who are we going to look our noses down and say we're better than anyone else? Because if I'm alive today, if I'm spiritually alive, it's not because I sought for God, but God walked by my grave and said, come alive, and I did. And so I'm going to be humble. I have to be if I believe 
the gospel and not just articulate it. It means we're going to be a hopeful people, right? Because what sinner is too far from the grace of God if what God does for every sinner is raise them from the dead? You wouldn't look at a corpse and go, that corpse is sort of dead. That one's really dead. That one's really, really dead. No, once a corpse is dead, a corpse is dead. And if it's going to come alive again, it's going to need some immense resurrection power. What that means is you sitting here with faith in your hearts is proof that God can bring any life up from the grave. And it makes you hopeful that none are too far from the resurrecting power of the gospel. That when we speak these words to the ears of people, there is no heart too far dead for God because he has been in the business of resurrecting the dead from, begin- from the beginning of the world. It means that this gospel is not going to become this stale, crusty, old thing that we occasionally revisit to evangelize new people. It's going to be this good news that flows in our hearts daily. And we're constantly going back to it and reminding ourselves and rehearsing this truth and and being renewed by this good news. It doesn't grow old. It doesn't grow stale because I need the gospel today as much as I did the first day I came to faith. I'll give you an example. On Wednesday of this week, because I knew I had these, you know, nine-hour classes on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I was really aiming to be done with my sermon by Wednesday, all right? So I'm shooting for it. Wednesday night comes, I'm not done. I go to soul care. I then get to my house, and I'm, I, we've put Hannah down. I'm holding Mike. I'm about to put him into the crib, and I'm, and I'm praying to the Lord, and I'm sitting in this dark room, and I just feel like God is so displeased with me. Like, what a loser. Now, maybe, maybe sermons aren't your thing. You've got your own things. But for me, it was, I was supposed to finish. I told God I was going to finish. I needed to finish. I'm such an undisciplined, and I just felt the weight of God's displeasure. Like, when I pictured his face, it was just this scowl, like, when are you going to do better? And at that moment, what do I have to do? The only thing I can go back to is the same message that brought me to Christ in the first place. You see, the truth is, I had much bigger problems than an unfinished sermon. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was following the prince of the power of the air. I was an object of God's wrath. And while I was dead in my trespasses and sins, God was rich in mercy and grace towards me and made me alive. And so you think the God who loved me while I was dead in my trespasses and sins is going to take that love back because I didn't finish a sermon by Wednesday? And so the gospel wonderfully reminded me I belong to Christ. And Christ is my righteousness. And his finished work is what counts. And the Father looks upon me with pleasure. And I belong to him. And the face that I see from the heavens is not a scowl, but a smile towards me in Christ. This gospel, and I'm telling you just a small thing, was wonderfully good news to me again on Wednesday. As good as the hour that I first heard it. If we're going to be a people at Seven Mile Road who are about the gospel, this gospel has to become something we live. And it's got to change us. All right, so that's the first thing I know God wants us to be about. Here's the second. Whether it's 10 years from now or 100 years from now, here's what God's called Seven Mile Road to be about. Look at verses 11 through 21. I won't read it all. Look at Ephesians 2. We'll start at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now there's more that we could keep reading. But the second thing that I know God wants us to be about is community. God wants us, whether it's five minutes from now, five years from now, 500 years from now, to be about Jesus and his gospel and Jesus and his community. Now, what do we mean by community? Again, Paul says it better than I could. Look, here's the way most people in our city, most of you, most people think about spirituality. Spirituality is this private, personal experience. It's got this vertical dimension between me and God, right? If you think about spirituality, it's this. In fact, that's the why our culture says you don't bring religion into the public sphere because it's a personal thing. It's a private thing. It's a thing between me and God and no one else. I want you to hear this. That could not be any further from the truth of what biblical Christianity is. Biblical Christianity knows of no such thing as a relationship with you and God and no one else. Because biblical Christianity, by definition, is a relationship between you and God and you and God's people. It's it's necessarily a relationship between you and God's people. Listen to me. Any person who has a relationship with God who keeps the church at arm's length does not know God. That's any person who knows God and keeps the church at arm's length that does not belong to God's church does not know God. Because biblical Christianity is this understanding that the gospel necessarily brings you into community. And if you are not deeply in community, you do not know the gospel. If you come in and out of church and hop around at a bunch of churches and don't belong to a church, the question is not just, are you doing something wrong and should we slap your wrist? It's, do you know the gospel? Let me give you an example. I've said this before. If, if a son was adopted into a family and that child said, Dad, I want a relationship with you. In fact, I'm going to work on this relationship with you for the rest of my life, but I don't want anything to do with your other children. Does that work? You would go to that boy and go, you obviously don't understand what being adopted means. Because to be adopted means you come into family. It's not just you come into a relationship with dad or with a parent. It's you come into a family. You are now necessarily a brother or a sister. You can't not be. And if you are not, that means you don't know what it's like to be adopted. The scriptures say that that's what's happened to us. We have been adopted by God. And Jesus Christ came as the older brother and brought us into the family of God. Look at verse uh, 20, 19. It says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That one of the things the gospel necessarily did was bring you into the household of God. That God's got a household. God's got a family. He's the head of that house. And he brings you as his children into that household. 
And so you are brought into an inseparable relationship with God your Father and all of God's other children who now are your brothers and sisters. This is how Paul describes it. Look at how he says it. In verse 12, he speaks of us being separated from Christ and alienated from God's people. But in verse 13, he talks about us who are being far off, now being brought near. And that's being brought near both to God and God's people. Verse 14, he talks about Jesus being our peace and that he's broken down the wall of hostility between us. Not just that he's removed the barrier between us and God, but he's removed the wall of hostility between one another. Then in verse 18, he talks about how we have access in one spirit to one father, like many children who share one father. Verse 19 to 21, he talks about us being fellow citizens, fellow members of the household of God, that we're being joined together, that we're being built together. The gospel's aim is to build you to one another. A new year has begun. And those of you that are Christians, many times we make resolutions about getting closer to God this year, right? And that's right and it's good. But when you think about growing in your relationship with God, most of us say that what we need to work on is having better devotional times, more consistent reading of the scripture, better memorizing of the scriptures. And yet what the scriptures are saying, there is no growing in relationship with God that is not simultaneously growing in relationship with the people of God. The Bible says, if you don't love your brother whom you do see, how are you going to walk around saying you love God whom you don't see? If you, if you don't love your brother whom you do see, how are you going to walk around saying you love God who you don't see? If you don't know what it's like to be in relationship with a real-life flesh-and-blood human being across the aisle, how are you going to be in relationship with this infinite God you do not see? I want you to hear this. Many of us who do not grow, who feel stunted and dwarfed in our growth, in our Christian maturity, it's because you do not belong to biblical community. I want you to hear that again. The reason many of us are dwarfed and shrinking and struggle with the same things over and over again and seem to find no hope and no betterness and no way out and no maturity is because we are not living in biblical community. And again, I want to say, like we said with the gospel, it's not just to be able to articulate this, it's to live this out. I'm not just trying to articulate for us a doctrine of community. I'm saying, if this is true, it's going to change the way that we live. If Seven Mile Road is going to be about community, it's going to mean some things. It's going to mean, for example, that we're fighting for peace with one another. Hear that? That this this theoretical thing has hands and feet to it. It means we're going to have to work on relationships with one another. It doesn't mean you're going to be best friends with everyone here. We know that. But what it does mean is you're going to work hard at fighting gossip and fighting division and fighting disunity. You're going to work hard at those uncomfortable conversations. You're going to clarify misunderstandings. You're going to pursue reconciliation. You're going to seek and offer forgiveness. Because if this thing doesn't have real life hands and feet, then it's just stuff we talk about. If we're going to live community, it's going to mean something towards the relationships we have with one another. It's going to mean that you approach life in this community like a family member and not a consumer. Hear that. If community is real, then what American Christianity, evangelical Christianity has produced is consumer Christians. 
right? We come to church, we get our religious goods and services, and we leave. And yet, if we really believe community, then you're going to approach this place like family and not a consumer, right? When you go out to eat at a restaurant, it's very different than the experience of eating at home. You go out to a restaurant, someone else pulls your chair and sets your table and brings you food. You eat it, and you're done, and you get up and you leave. Nobody sticks around and says, can I help with the dishes in the back? That's very different than eating at home. Eating at home means someone's got to prepare the meal, and you help set the table, and you pass plates to one another, and nobody just snaps their fingers and asks for more water. You participate, and when it's all done, you help clean the dishes and put things away. Life in community is very different than life as a consumer. And if community is real, then you're asking yourself, how do I really belong? And if you're not asking that, then you got to ask yourself, do I really belong to God? That's not a guilt trip. That's the same question of, if you don't have a relationship with your adopted brothers and sisters, do you know what adoption is in the first place? One of the ways we live out community in, in Seven Mile Road is through soul care communities. Is soul care perfect? No. Is it, is it fixed and done? Do we have lots to grow from it? Absolutely. But is it one step in the direction we're going? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there things we want to change and figure out and learn and do better? Absolutely. We're not married to any methods. We're married to the truth of biblical community. And we're asking, how do we get at that? But here's the question. The scriptures tell you, confess your sins to one another. Encourage one another. How are you going to do that unless you're in deep relationships with people? And so I'm asking you again, is our theology stuff that we say or live out here? There's one last thing, one last word that I know Seven Mile Road is supposed to be about, whether it's 10 years from now or 100 years from now. And if you've been at Seven Mile Road, you know what this last word is. If you've been on our website, if you've seen the welcome card in front of you, God is calling Seven Mile Road to be about Jesus and his gospel and Jesus and his community and Jesus and his mission. That's the other thing. Whether it's 100 years from now, I know we're shooting to become. Look at chapter 3 and we'll look at verse 7. And then we'll close. Chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. Paul has just finished speaking about the gospel. He's just finished speaking right after that about how the gospel brought him into community. Community is necessarily birthed by the gospel. And then in verse 7 of chapter 3, he starts talking about what the gospel does as well. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory. Here's what I want you to hear. The third thing that I know I know that I know that I know that God wants our church to be about is mission. Here's what I want you to picture. I was, gonna, I was tempted to ask you to humor me and do it, but I won't. Hold your breath. If I asked you to hold your breath 
And, and we, we would do a contest to see who could hold it the longest, right? What's that feeling like? I won't ask you to do it, but, but when you go home, try it, okay? Hold your breath. And what you feel, you know it because you've done it, is this, this pressing pressure that this is not the rhythm of life. In fact, you know you can't even commit suicide and die by holding your breath because your body kicks in and forces you to breathe out. Because there's this rhythm to life. It's, it's you breathe in and you breathe out. You gather in and you scatter out. That's the rhythm of life. And to do one without the other is death. Right? You can't do it. That's not the way that we were set up to work. Listen, there's this rhythm to the gospel life. The gospel is sort of like the blood that flows in you and produces this gathering in community and this necessarily being sent out on mission. That, that's the rhythm God intended for the Christian life, this gathering in community and this being sent out on mission. Right? Even in our service, you feel this rhythm. We begin with what? A call to worship where I remind you God has gathered us this morning. And the last thing that you hear every week is Sibby saying, go in peace, go on mission. Right? Our, our service is this gathering in community and this sending out on mission. But here's the thing. So many of us live like this. <gasps> Some of us will come to believe that there's this vertical and horizontal relationship. And so we'll take gospel and community. But then what we tend to do is just insularly stay in community. All we want to do is be around the people that are just like us and make us feel most comfortable. And so church becomes this insular, warped, weird thing where every eye is looking in. And all that we do is just for us. The programs and ministries and things that we start exist for us. And so we've got Sunday school and, and Bible studies and couples fellowships and teens fellowships and men's groups and women's groups and singles groups and, and children's groups. And all those things have their place. I'm not knocking any of them. But everything becomes about us. We want to have a basketball league. We'll start a church league. There's dozens in the city. But that would mean we've got to rub shoulders with people that we are uncomfortable with. We've got to be in this world. And what we do is we love making the church this bunker that we retreat to. We escape that evil world by running here. A safe place, a good place for our children to learn good morals and be around good people so that we can be comfortable. And what we're doing is we're experiencing this Christianity that holds its breath and tries to live out that way. And and to the ruin of our own growth, We're not being sent out. We're not being scattered. We're taking in breath, but not breathing it out. In fact, you know what's interesting? The word for spirit is the same word in the original languages for breath, right? So God's put the spirit in us so that we might breathe out God's spirit into this city, into this world. He's called us to be on mission. He's called us to to go, That's what Paul says here. Of this gospel, I was made a minister that I might preach to everyone, that I might bring to light everyone the the mystery of God's gospel and the plan that God had from the beginning. Now, here's the thing I want to say again. You know what the temptation is? It'll be another week where we articulate a good doctrine of mission. 
And we are so good about speaking about these things and speaking of it well. The question is, are we going to talk about the theology of mission and the doctrine of mission, or are we going to beg God, would you please, would you please let this Sunday be a Sunday where I'm begging you to let me actually live this out? Would you not let it be, people should talk to other people about Jesus, but please help me see where am I missing the gospel that I'm not that person who's supposed to talk to other people about Jesus, right? Because if we believe this thing, it's going to mean some things for us. It's going to mean that we're doing the things that we've set ourselves to do and are doing them, and I want to commend you. I'm not trying to guilt you. I want to commend you for the things that you're doing. For example, for the last two years, you have given out 20% of all the money that's come in here because you are committed to mission. I want to encourage you. You've helped plant a church in Boston. You are, this past year, helping plant a church in Camden, New Jersey. You are helping plant a church in Dallas. Those are good things that we can celebrate. Because of your giving, your giving out, you are helping towards relief in Haiti. You've helped towards relief in Japan. You're helping towards working with the red light district in Bombay. I celebrate that because I know who we are by nature. We would stay in forever. And so any evidence that we're doing something outward is God's grace to us, right? So I celebrate that. We have 10 of you or more who are getting ready to get on a plane and go for 10 days. And you're giving up your own money to go. That is a joy that I want to celebrate because that means the gospel is doing something in the life of this church. It's not just this chest that's fallen flat, but it's breathing. It, it means there's life here. But what I want to ask you is, for all of us, we've got to ask God, would you let me live this thing out? Would you let me not just talk about mission? Would you, you know why? I find it, I don't know about you, I find it's much easier to get on a plane for 10 days and be a missionary than to live in and live week in and week out as a neighbor in my apartment complex as a missionary. I find it's much easier to write a check for someone to tell someone else about Jesus in Camden than for me to tell someone about Jesus in Northeast Philadelphia. So I'm not knocking those things. I'm just saying I can't rest thinking I've done my part. I've got to repent and go, God, what is this thing in me? that I want to breathe in and huddle with the people that I love and I have no idea what it's like to be sent out. And I want you to know I'm the choir that I'm preaching to. I'm telling this to my own heart. But I'm asking God, would you just, I'm not, I'm not making any promises. I'm just saying, would you please show me what I'm missing about the gospel that I'm living this insular life, enjoying community, but not being sent on mission. So if that's you with me, repent. And ask God, would you change that about me this year? I want you to hear, at our soul care community, many of our soul cares are good and gospel's happening and community's happening, but we're not very great at mission. And yet, even in our baby soul care community in the Northeast, all of a sudden, just through prayer, we're finding there's these great missional opportunities that God is opening. So set yourself to prayer. And I want to show you that that's how Paul ends this passage. Look at what he does after he talks about Jesus and his gospel and Jesus and his community and Jesus and his mission. Verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And then he goes on to say that you might know the depth and height and width and breadth and length of the gospel 
and that you might be filled with the fullness of God. If we're going to be a people who really believe the gospel and really live in community and are really sent on mission, then perhaps the first thing we ought to do is pray as well and say, God, would you help us to actually get this gospel deep enough that it would gather us in community and send us out on mission? All right, so 25 years from now, I have no idea who of us will be here. I have no idea if we'll be in this building. I have no idea what we'll look like. I'll have no idea what we'll have accomplished or done. But would you pray with me that 25 years from now or 100 years from now, after we're all long gone, after our bodies are six feet under and our spirits are with the Lord, that whoever is here would be about Jesus and his gospel, would be about Jesus and his community, and would be about Jesus and his mission, that that would never change. We would believe the gospel, be gathered in community, and sent on mission. Let's pray. For this reason, Father, we bow our knees and ask that you might flood our own hearts with a knowledge of the gospel, not knowing about it, but knowing you, and knowing the gospel, that it would become in us that we would live it out. It would necessarily bring us into relationships with your people. Our relationship with you would necessarily draw us into deep relationship with your people. And a relationship with you would necessarily send us out into the world that does not know you, that we might preach to everyone and be a light to all the goodness of God in the gospel. We ask you to please forgive us for the parts of this that we have not lived. Some of us don't believe the gospel. Would you help us to start there? I pray that there are many in this room who go to church and know about the gospel and yet have not yet seen their hearts come alive. Would you call out to many today and say, be alive. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy and grace made us alive. So call out to many and give them the grace to respond to you, to come out and be alive, to see you. Some of us believe that part, but we're not living in community. And we pray that you would let this be a year where we are drawn into some deep relationships, where we're living out what it means to know you, where we're living out love for people that we can see as evidence of love for a God that we cannot see. And those of us that you have brought into gospel and community, would you send us on mission? Paul says, for this reason, I, though being the least of all the saints, was given the grace to preach. So uh, in this room, I know are a bunch of people who say, this might be for someone else. I am too small and too unable and too weak, and I don't know what to say. And yet Paul says, to the least of all the saints was given this grace. It's, it's precisely to a powerless people like us that you've called us on mission so that all the glory might go to you. And I pray that that helplessness would drive us to prayer, to seek the power of your spirit rather than the strength of our flesh. There's many more things that can be said, but we ask that the Holy Spirit would now minister to us even better than I have prayed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.